If you have your Bibles, let's turn to Second Peter this morning. Second Peter. For those of you who have already thanked me for the, the change of chairs, I really don't know what happened. Um, so I hate to say this under my breath, don't get too used to them. Uh, they are comfortable. We're grateful for them. They also installed a dance floor for us in the middle of the sanctuary. So we're grateful for that opportunity if anybody needs to dance. Second Peter is a, is a book near the end of the, the Bible. So if you are not familiar with it, it's Hebrews, James, First and Second Peter, First and Second, Third John. The Apostle Peter is an old man by the time he takes up the pen to write this letter. It's somewhere between the early and mid-60s A.D., Uh, The first words of this letter really tell us very much about the themes that Peter intends to address. Speaking to people who are believers, but who live in the world like you do, prone to be shaken, prone to temptations that would rattle and undo their faith, prone to be carried away by sinful desires of the flesh that still dwell within us. Peter says, very clearly, you can and you must grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pick up 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 through 4. This is God's Word. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire." This is God's Word. Let's pray for His help. Oh, Father, uh, it is Your Word. Thank You for speaking through the hand of Peter by the ministry of Your Holy Spirit. We pray now that as You speak through me, a sinful, crooked stick, that You would point us to Christ Jesus. I pray, Lord God, that You would give to us the ears that we might hear what You say to Your people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're around my age or maybe a little bit older and you watched cartoons on Saturday morning, ABC television, you'll remember Schoolhouse Rock. And you start thinking about Conjunction Junction, what's your function? So many others that come to your mind, but it's actually not any of those that I want to draw your attention to. As I was staring at these verses, it was the introductory music and the lyrics that stood out to me. As your body grows bigger, your mind must flower. It's great to learn because knowledge is power. Knowledge is power. When it comes to 2 Peter, you encounter that exact same idea, but in a slightly different way. In the Bible, the knowledge that produces power is not the knowledge of a subject. 
It's not the knowledge of how to, how to do things, but rather it's the knowledge of a being. It's the knowledge of, of God himself. In fact, in the Bible, knowledge is always connected to intimacy. You saw that when we studied the book of Exodus, the God who desires to make himself known summons his people into a, a relationship with him, and it's a relationship meant to be one of closeness. That continues to be true throughout the rest of the Bible. God draws him t- himself to his people so that they might know his glory, so that they might know his perfection and his promise. But we know him. And then knowing him more and more, we're called to use the knowledge that we have of his being, of his essence, of his glory, to continue to glorify him and to enjoy him. How are you doing with that? Quite often when we take an account of ourselves, we might in honest moments say, I'm a little bit frustrated, maybe a little discouraged by the fact that I'm not, very, I'm not growing very quickly. In fact, my spiritual growth is slow, it's difficult. And then, of course, the danger is that when it's slow and difficult, you and I get tired of, of trying Maybe even you look around at other people and you say, what's wrong with me? It doesn't seem so hard for that person to grow in Christ. They must have it figured out. Why is my life moving forward so slowly? I'm two steps forward, one step back. Somehow he is growing. She is growing. What's wrong with me? Listen, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you must know that every person in this room who is following Christ is likewise struggling through what it is to grow in Christ. You must also know that there are no superhero Christians among us. But you must also know that real transformation is possible. Not only is it possible, it will happen. Thirdly, it's actually kind of helpful to hear this from Peter. Peter. (laughs) Jesus, even if everybody else leaves you, I'll never leave you. What'd you say, little girl? Jesus? I don't I don't know the guy. Cock-a-doodle-doo. As the rooster crows that third time. Peter. So here's Peter. In his old age, he says. Brothers and sisters, spiritual growth really is possible. When it comes to spiritual growth, knowledge is power. We have four points this morning as we just walk through the text. A detail worth declaring, a prayer worth pondering, a power worth pursuing, and then finally a promise worth pushing. We'll start with this detail worth declaring. The book opens in verse 1, Simeon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. What Peter is doing here by saying Simeon is he's just leaning into his Jewish heritage. That's a, a Hebrew form of his name. We haven't seen that form since the Jerusalem council in Acts chapter 15, where Peter, a stalwart Jew, is referred to as Simeon. Here he calls himself both a servant and an apostle. He says, I am the lowest of possible positions, and yet God has granted to me the highest possible office in the church. The word servant is the same word for slave. 
That is, it's a person who's been purchased and now dwells under the ownership of another. Peter says that's actually what salvation means. In Christ, your life, like mine, has been bought with a price, and you are not your own. This has repeated implications now, not only in this letter, but continually in the Scriptures. And then this title, Apostle, can be used generally to refer to a, a messenger. But here it's a, it's a formal office. Jesus called and appointed twelve men to serve as His disciples. And then when Judas fell away, he was replaced by Matthias. Then later, Paul is added to that number to make 13. And these 13 men bore witness to the risen Christ. And these are the only 13 men who had the office of apostle. Nobody living today is an apostle. Christ called and equipped them to establish the church. But here's what I want you to see. Who is Peter writing to? He says, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. Ours whose? An equal standing of faith with us, the apostles. How did we get that equal standing? The verse says it. By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, the word obtained in our culture means to us something like, I've earned it, or I got it because I went after it. But this is a verb that really means to receive. In fact, when it's used outside the New Testament, it's more like used with casting of lots. In other words, you received it because it it fell upon you. And so, biblically speaking, what Paul says is you've, I mean, Peter says you've received a faith because it was given to you. And that's what Ephesians 2 also says. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God made us alive together with Christ. And so, from beginning to end, salvation is always God's work. It's a free gift on offer that each person must embrace for themselves. And yet, says the Scripture, even the power to grab hold of the offer of salvation, is given to us by God. That's why Peter says, you and I possess a faith that provides us the same standing before God as the men who walked with Jesus, as the men who stood on the Mount of Transfiguration with Christ, as the men who came and saw the empty tomb, as the men who touched the hands and the pierced side. You're standing before Christ is identical to those 13 from whom Christ established the church. It's a detail worth declaring. Some of you need to hear this today and you need to let it lift your head. Because if you tend to look at others and compare yourself and feel less than, the Bible says in Christ... God has given you the exact same faith as those that you deem to be spiritual giants. So standing before God, insert your name here. Susan, Eric, Cord, Lucy, Bo, Charles, whatever your name is, whoever you are. The person who slips in and out of the church feeling too timid to be involved. If you've ever trusted in Christ as your Savior, you've obtained a faith of equal standing before God as St. Peter, 
as Saint Paul, as Saint John, as any of them. And as it pertains to a standing before God, you might say you lack nothing. And why is this so? It's so because the text says that the righteousness actually belongs to Jesus anyway. It is imputed to us, which is a word that simply means transferred to your account, like a, like a bank transaction, simply by believing upon the Lord Jesus Christ. What is faith anyway? You might think of it as a, as a spiritual hand by which you reach out and trust Christ. But even that hand is given to you by God. Another side of the coin is this. If you tend to look down upon others for anything, whatever comparisons you might make about another person in order to make yourself feel superior... Think about this. When you stand before Almighty God, He is not going to be seeking your opinion about your own merits, nor is He going to seek your opinion about the thoughts that you had toward others that you considered lesser than you, less intelligent, less fit, less attractive, or even how they should have voted. Whatever measure you have, it will not hold water Because righteousness comes by faith. And anyone whose faith is in Christ has, says Peter, an equal standing before God. What does this do? It elevates the lowly and it humbles the haughty. Moreover, this is actually one of the clearest New Testament texts explaining the divinity of Jesus Christ. That's actually why I use the Nicene Creed in our worship service this morning. You notice verse 1 says Jesus is not a, a good moral teacher. He's not a leader of a movement. He is, Jesus is God. Jesus is Savior. So when it comes to spiritual growth, knowledge is power. That's a a detail worth declaring. But notice also, there's a prayer worth pondering. Not everybody looks at verse 2 as a prayer. Because when you first read it, it sounds like a benediction, like, like the benedictions that we use at the end of our worship service. Benedict, good word from God to his people. So here's Peter, the under-shepherd of God's flock. He's praying or he's speaking this good word over his first readers, but also over us. Look at it. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Grace and peace, as you know, is deeply rooted in the Old Testament. In fact, one of the benedictions that we use in this church at the end of our worship service comes from Numbers chapter 6. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance toward you and give you peace, a blessing from God through Aaron, the priest, to speak or pray over the people of God. It sounds very similar to what Peter does here. If you've read other New Testament letters, you know that this phrase is common, grace and peace. What is not super common in the letters is that there would be a prayer for that grace and peace to be multiplied. How could grace be multiplied? Well, he's not talking about the grace which justifies you before God. 
He's talking about the grace in which God gives you that you would be sanctified, that you would be changed, that you might have more grace to to grow in your new identity. Because, of course, your justification can never increase, but you can and and must grow in Christ-like character, grace to, to grow in godliness and your faith. That's why he speaks of grace, but also peace multiplied to you. You know this. Your faith can feel fragile. Some of you have had your faith tested, and you've seen just how fragile it can be. And I don't mean that your standing before God is fragile, but rather how you feel about your identity, how you live into that new identity. All of those are are fragile. That's why you need the help of the Holy Spirit But you do not grow in knowledge of God simply by osmosis. You can't lay the the Bible underneath your pillow at night and then simply hope that you wake up tomorrow morning being different. Sanctification is bestowed through these ordinary means of grace. That's how grace and peace are multiplied. What am I talking about? These ordinary means of grace? Reading your Bible, prayer, worship, here, among God's people, a fellowship of believers. How do I know that this is what he's talking about? Because he connects the multiplication of grace and peace with verse 2, the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Knowledge. Again, verse 2 Knowledge has been, this here, verse 2, has been called the thesis of the entire letter. Peter prays that you and I will know God, and in knowing Him, you'll enjoy getting to know Him more and more. May the grace that you experience and the peace that you experience grow exponentially. Where do you and I gain a knowledge of God? By using something that's so simple that you never outgrow it. His Word and prayer, and sacraments, and regular corporate worship, because the Spirit of God is the one who's been given to you as your teacher. He's the one who's given you God's written Word, but you must actually read it, and you must pray over it, and you must meditate over it. A story is told of a, of a recent convert to Christianity. As he began to look at the Scriptures, he was, he was a, a, amazed and, and remarked that he could not believe that it had been written to him, and so he decided to have the New Testament letters typed up. He had a friend address them to him personally and had them mailed to his mailbox. So he received the letters of the New Testament addressed from God to him. And you might say, well, that's too much. That's a little overdone. You don't have to do that. And I'm not saying that you should do that. But I am saying that when you receive a personal handwritten letter in the mail from anyone who means anything to you, you read it. And you evaluate what it says because it's personal. And there's something significant, maybe even something useful about the the sentiment of a man who desires to know that the Lord has written to him his word. And see, God's written word is directly to you, all of it. 
I know there is an original audience. You don't need to tell me that. I know there's context. But are his letters sitting beside your bed? Unopened? Are his letters hanging unopened on your shelf from week to week? Then moreover, we must learn to pray. Oh, I'm struggling with sin. Well, pray. In your anxieties and and concerns, pray. And so, friends, when you complain about how slow your spiritual growth is, when when you feel frustrated by the apparent lack of progress, test this first. Am I actually using the ordinary means, the ordinary path of spiritual growth in my life? Am I reading to hear the voice of the king who loved me and, and saved me from my sins? Am I being confronted by his word so that when I, when I meet more about my sin, I, I'm sent running back to the cross through his word and prayer and the sacraments and, and corporate worship? Corporate worship is one of the ordinary means of grace. The fact is, when you are not making use of the ordinary means of grace, Peter would say, you're putting yourself in a dangerous spot. You underestimate the lies that your heart would be willing to believe. You underestimate the twisting of your heart and what you might do in your thoughts with with truth. You underestimate the deception of your own temptation. When it comes to spiritual growth, knowledge is power. We've had a detail worth declaring, a prayer worth pondering. Thirdly, a power worth pursuing, and it's found in verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own excellence and glory. What Peter is saying is God has given to you resources at your disposal. What are those resources? All things for life and godliness. And this is not just for some. It's not just for the the really hardworking, super spiritual Christians. No, every true Christian possesses all things that are needed for eternal life. All things necessary to grow in godliness. And where where do these resources come from? The text says they are a gift of God's divine power. Because number one, you don't have them yourself. On your own, you could never grow. You could never secure for yourself eternal life. But number two, God's divine power is fully sufficient. So the source of your eternal life is nothing less than the power that raised Christ from the dead. The source of your growth in grace is nothing less than the power that sent forth the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Do you believe that God's divine power has granted to you everything that you need for eternal life? For some of you, that will feel down the road. I can think about that later. Fact is, this comes up more often than you would think. Naturally, you will encounter this issue as you draw near to death. People say, how do I know for sure that I'll receive eternal life? The Bible says, because the power of God guarantees it for all those who have knowledge of Christ, who've been called to this glory and this excellence. But this fact comes up more frequently still. 
like when through the Holy Spirit's help, you begin to see the wickedness of your heart with a somewhat embarrassingly clear lens. How am I doing with my besetting sins? How was my heart attitude towards those who bothered me? Why do I keep worrying? How have I failed to to love my husband, to love my wife, to love my children? Why do I keep seeming to think that everybody has to serve me? And when they serve me, why do I start looking at them like they are my servants? And in those moments of those clear lenses, you must know that it is only God's divine power that has made eternal life possible because nothing else could. Secondly, do you believe that God's divine power has granted you every resource needed for godliness? I haven't preached in four weeks. I've been staring at these verses for four weeks. I've been thinking about this verse personally because like you, my growth in holiness is frustratingly slow, often disappointing. Again, Peter says, knowledge is the means of your growth. In fact, through knowledge of God, that saving faith, you've been called to experience a taste of God's glory and excellence. That's why this is a power worth pursuing. I want my life to have godliness in it. I want eternal life. But where's the power? Maybe it doesn't seem to you that you have it. Maybe an illustration would help. I recently finished a book called Tap Code. It's written by a POW Vietnam veteran survivor. Smitty Harris was shot down over North Vietnam in 1964. He separated from his wife and three children for eight long years. He lost the vast majority of their growing up. And finally, after eight years in chains and beating and cruelty and starvation, prisoners begin to get news. First, it trickles in But then it floods in. Something is imminent. We're about to be released. And when they find that everything has been, that they're about to be released, suddenly, says Harris, everything changed. Everything about their attitude changed. The knowledge that the release is coming was enough to empower hope, empower patience, empower perseverance. And it was still several weeks before they were ever rescued. Spiritually speaking, do you have a similar situation? Because if the knowledge of an impending release from a prison camp known as the Hanoi Hilton was enough to empower hope and patience and perseverance, what does the knowledge of a God who came to your cell and released you from your sin give to you? A knowledge that the God of the universe has come to your cell and said, He's mine and she's mine. Release him, release her. You've been freed like that. And so even as you and I are walking out of the prison camp, even now we make use of the ordinary means. 
so that we begin to understand more and more about the God who unlocked the gate and set us free. We begin to understand the joys of placing our life and our hope in Him. We begin to see with greater hope and optimism the place that we are headed. Peter says to know God. And Christ, who sets you free, is to begin to tap into the power worth pursuing. It's the power that you need to be patient and to persevere as you fight against sin. One pastor said it this way, Though the process is hard, long, ordinary, usually slow, we must grow in godliness. And in fact, we can grow more than we think. When it comes to spiritual growth, knowledge is power. It's a detail worth declaring, a prayer worth pondering, a power worth pursuing, finally a promise worth pushing. That's a bunch of Ps. You've hung with every one of them. Listen carefully. Through the knowledge of God, you begin to grasp His glory and His excellence. And as you grasp that glory and excellence, you understand that you've inherited verse 4. His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desires. I love that the youth are studying the promises of God, because the Bible is full of of promises, and, and Peter calls them precious. You probably don't use that word very often, do you? You do use it when you talk about jewels, diamonds, rubies sapphires. In this life, there is nothing more valuable, more precious than God's promises. Think about the Christian who's struggling under the weight of a trial. What would be more valuable than Hebrews 12, that the Lord loves those He disciplines, and His discipline, though it's painful for a moment, will ultimately yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who've been trained by it. For the believer who is overcome by his own wickedness and guilt, what could be more valuable than the promise of Romans chapter 5? Since you've been justified by faith, you have peace with God. The Christian who feels alone or beaten down or weak or without a friend, the Christian who feels stressed over money, what a treasure to hear God's promises from Hebrews 13, 5. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. As you grow to understand the glories and excellence of God, you push into these promises. And as you push into those promises, you start to reflect the glory and excellence of the divine nature of God Himself. Let's be clear, you do not become like God in His essence. You don't become omniscient or omnipresent But as you grab hold of and lean into and push into the promises of God, you actually grow like God in character. You become a more patient person. You become a a more faithful person, a more sin-conquering person. In fact, even in this passage that we just read, four verses, you find very precious promises. He's promised you a faith of equal standing. He's promised you grace and peace multiplied. He's promised you divine power. He's promised you a life of godliness. I want you to notice how this passage closes. You become like God because you've escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desires. Did you catch that? It is not the world itself that is the problem. 
It is the sinful desires that are in the world that's the problem. So for many of us, it's easy to look out into the world and be troubled by the corruption that I see out there. Peter says the corruption that is out there in the world is a corruption that exists not because it's the world, but because the sinful desires of the human heart always twist and corrupt the good things of God, which makes this a fair application not for the world, but for you and me. God hasn't caused you to escape the world. He's caused you, he's caused you to escape the corruptions of your own sinful desires. So that means when you look out there, you recognize out there is not my biggest danger. The biggest danger is actually present in my own heart. Moreover, what you see out there is indicative of what could still be set ablaze if you do not seek to grow in godliness. And until you see that, you won't rightly understand who the enemy really is, and you won't rightly focus your attention. I'm so mad about the evil in the world. And Peter says, make sure you look inwardly and recognize the evil in the world could potentially be set ablaze in your own heart. You see the lies the world tells? Look out for the lies of your heart. You see the deception, the twisting of truth out there in the world. Watch out for the deceptions of your own heart, the twisting of truth inside your own head. Your greatest danger is not out there in the world. It's the latent sinful desires of your heart. Therefore, Peter's going to go on to say, you don't actually have to focus on fixing the corruption of the world. But rather, add godly virtues to your faith. And you'll become a more effective, more fruitful, more secured follower of Christ. Make sure you know your identity. God called you out of your old sinful desires. He's called you into his glory and excellence. And it's this status change that becomes the jet fuel to push you forward toward growth and godliness. When it comes to spiritual growth, knowledge is power. Let us make every effort to know the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would bind your word to our hearts, that we would have the ears to hear what you have spoken, and that you would teach us from it. Transform us, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.